You're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. Go ahead and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the uh, old history lesson of Lewis and Clark, the Lewis and Clark expedition. We've got a map of it up here on the screen. But for those who need a refresher, it was 1803, and uh, Thomas Jefferson was the President of the United States uh, when we purchased the Louisiana Territory from France. Got a pretty good deal, called it the Louisiana Purchase. Pretty much everything from uh, Texas and Louisiana up to Montana, North Dakota. It, uh, it was 800,000 square miles, almost doubled the size of our country, but we didn't know what was on it. So President Jefferson sent an expedition up the Missouri River uh, that, uh, under the command of his trusted private secretary, Meriwether Lewis, who then recruited his buddy, uh, William Clark, hence the Lewis and Clark expedition. So against all these crazy odds, uh, just one death, very little conflict, Lewis and Clark traveled more than 8,000 miles the old way <laughs> and, um, and produced maps, geographical information. They identified at least 120 animal specimens. They took 200 botanical samples. They initiated peaceful relations with dozens of Native American tribes. It was a huge success, except for one thing, the purpose that they went on the expedition which was to find that long-awaited Northwest Passage between the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans, right? They wanted a, a waterway to connect for commerce and things from the Atlantic to the Pacific, but they didn't find it. There was this little problem in the way, 3,000-mile stretch of mountain range that we came to know as the Great Divide, the Continental Divide. And I think that divide is a pretty good picture of what Paul's about to say regarding the reign of the flesh, R-E-I-G-N. The reign of the flesh versus the reign of the spirit. They don't flow the same direction, right? It's, it's what Paul pictures as the grace divide in Galatians 5, 19 to 26. So why don't we stand back up in honor of God's word and read this together? Galatians 5, 19, these are the words of God. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I want to ask Dean Edgar to come and ask God's blessings on the message today. Dean. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today blessed to be here and be able to worship you. Lord, we pray for those that weren't able to make it here today and that they can return to worship soon. Father, we pray for the message today and for Went delivering that message and just pray that we can be better and more faithful servants to you. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, amen. Thank you. Young be seated. Well, last week we saw a good offense, right? We're commanded to walk by the Spirit, everyone, everywhere, all the time, with a willful intent and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's our good offense because we face a bad 
uh, opposition and that wants to keep us from doing the things we want to do. But praise God, we've got a great outlook because God, the God who placed the, led the children of Israel with a cloud by day and fire by night, the God who put the star in the sky that led the wise men uh, to Jesus is the same God who pours his spirit into us to guide us in the direction we should go. And so uh, Paul what he does next is he unpacks what we talked about last week. We talked about that opposition. Well, he's going to unpack that bad opposition and by zooming in to contrast the desires of the flesh versus the fruits of the Spirit. He's going to show the grace divide. The desires of the flesh flow one way, the fruits of the Spirit flow another. There's an unmistakable divide, which is why Paul starts by saying in verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. Now, y'all have seen this meme recently, probably. Uh, I'm going to show a picture of it here. It illustrates how uh, some read the Bible today. You know, we look at uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not, but we don't read the rest of the verses that lead up to verse 16, which says, you will recognize them by their fruits, or grapes gathered from the thorn bushes or figs from thistles. Lewis and Clark returned to Washington, I think three years later in 1806, to report their findings, right? That there's, there's a lot of good stuff out west, but there's this unmistakable barrier between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And Paul, in a similar way, is reporting his findings. Remember that pathway you want to get on to, uh, to self-made perfection, right? That thing you all want so bad, well, there's this unmistakable barrier between you and it. It's opposed to us. It's against our progress. And so Paul, like Lewis and Clark, gets more specific, right, about that territory. He's going to map the territory and show its distinctiveness, identify, identify each side of the grace divide. And, and what he does is start with the bad news. I'm glad he starts with the bad news first, all right? And on one side of this mountain, this great divide, is the flesh, all right, Galatians 5.19, I'll just read these again. The works of the flesh are evident. Deep breath. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I feel like I need to wash my mouth out after that, right? There's a lot of sins in those three verses, right? But why would Paul give a list of sins if, if he can't name all of them? I mean, he's not going to, why, why just pick and choose all these sins, all right? Well, I think it's because of something we'll call identification. Identification. Church, listen, Christians love, we actually gravitate toward the generic. Do you know that? If we're not, if we just let our foot off the gas, we're going to go generic. Yeah. And if you don't believe me, let me just ask you, what are Walmart's generic brands? Just name them. Great value. What else? Yeah, great value. What else? Old Roy, that's what my, my, my Old Roy's a dog food for those of you that don't know. My uncle used to feed his, his dogs that. There's some, um, there's some issues with that food. You might need to look it up. Uh, might be why his dog died early. All right, uh, what else? What else is there? Wrangler. Wrangler, I don't know, okay. Equate, Sam's Choice. Mainstay is a Walmart brand. Parents, you're like, doggone, I thought that was something special I was getting. All right, sorry. Parents' Choice. Right. My point is we like generic things because we're cheap. I'm just kidding. We're frugal. And that's a good thing, Pastor. It's good to be frugal. Yes, it is. It is. It's good to be frugal in your food budget. It's not good to be frugal in your fruit budget, right? 
spiritually speaking. And that's what Paul's trying to do here. He's trying to keep us from being generic, right? Now, to be sure, some parts of the Bible are generic sounding. They seem generic. I don't think they are, but they seem that way. Like, God forgive us our sins. That's, that's in the Lord's Prayer uh, in Luke eleven two. When you pray, say, forgive us our sins. That sounds generic to me, right? Well, actually, I think what, what God was doing in that passage is teaching the principle of confessing sins, not which sins to confess, but the, the, the principle of confession in general, not just at the moment of salvation, right? It's definitely not the only time we should pray. When, when uh, Jesus says in, when it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing, which by the way is the shortest verse in the Bible, little Bible trivia there. It's not Jesus wept, not in the original. So in the original Greek, pray without ceasing is just two words. But it, the, he, he doesn't mean when he says pray without ceasing, say the Lord's Prayer over and over again, right? We know that. And the Lord's Prayer isn't the only place the principle of confession is mentioned. Psalm 41, verse 4, as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. Hey, listen, in, in, a, in our current culture with all its delicate pronouns, we need some pronouns of our own. Me, myself, and I. There needs to be more of those pronouns. Acts 8, 22 says, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. And pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. 1 John 1, 9, written specifically to Christians. All book of 1 John is only written to Christians. And it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? But all of those verses aren't seeking to name every sin that needs confessing. They're simply highlighting our need to identify sins, the ones we know we've committed, because they're evident and we must confess them to Christ and ask for forgiveness specifically. Confession, though, is not ambiguous. It's a command. It's necessary. It's humbling. And it restores us so that we can be in step with Christ. In a similar way, Paul is giving this list of sins. And by the way, it's not the only list in the Bible of sins. Over in Romans 129, you've got a pretty long list there. It says things like they know they know uh, they're disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Remember that word practice for later. 2 Timothy 3.2 has another list, very similar. Right? So there's plenty of sinful lists in the Bible, but why give lists at all again if they're not going to name all of them? To identify, like Riken says, the entire lifestyle that these acts of the flesh represent. The only thing the sinful nature can produce is an unchaste, unholy, uncharitable, undisciplined life. This is plain for all to see. The sinfulness of the sinful nature is so obvious as to be self-evident, partly because we've committed so many of these deadly deeds ourselves. Yes. <laughs> the Puritan William Perkins said, this list of vices is a mirror to reveal the corruption of our own hearts. Right? When you get a mirror, that mirror doesn't always show you your, all of your body at once. But you flip that mirror around, you know, those mirrors that zoom in, and you can see that blemish. And that's what this is for. Lewis and Clark set out to identify the territory, the terrain of the Louisiana Purchase. And Paul sets out to identify the territory of our hearts, the terrain that Christ has purchased. And it shouldn't have these sins, the practice of these sins on it. Now, when I read this list, 
You know, there's a sinful nature in me that likes to say, well, I didn't commit some of those sins. <laughs> there's at least one or two I don't remember doing, right? But all the rest jump out at me like a snake, you know? And my sinful nature wants to recoil rather than reveal the sin that's in me. That's why Stott says the flesh itself, our old nature, is secret and invisible. But its works, the words and deeds in which it erupts, are public and evident. All this to say this, Christian cannot hide behind the ambiguity of life. We must map our sins, identify, and choose sides. Which way does the rain fall in your heart? Does it flow to the Pacific or Atlantic? Does it flow toward the fruit or the flesh? So we know the reason for the list, but now we need to see the content of that list. And we'll do this by dividing these 15 sins into four classifications, right? Wearsby mentions three, sensual, superstitious, and social, but I think there's four. Most scholars do. Uh, most scholars think there are four. Sensual sins, religious sins, social sins, alcohol-related sins. Or to be blunt, sex, religion, society, and drink, right? And we'll start with sensual sins. There's three of these that we'll list. Galatians 5.19, this is a broad term. It refers to uh, all types of sexual sins, adultery, incest, homosexuality, bestiality, etc. But especially to sexual sins between men and women who aren't married. And I think that's because it's probably a more common, <laughs> just more common. It's from the Greek word porneia, where we get the word pornos from, which in English translates to pornography. And I believe that word is actually derived from uh, pernal, which means to sell off a selling off, a, a surrendering of sexual purity, promiscuity of any and every type. Friends, if you've been surrendering, you can stop surrendering <laughs> that area of your life. Then he goes on to say impurity. This is, uh, this word can mean ceremonially unclean, you know, but it, it, it came to be understood more, especially in Paul's writings, as, as sexual impurities. It's the same word Paul used over in Romans one twenty four, where he says, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And to summarize this, Thayer says, it's a, in a moral sense, it's the impurity of lustful, luxurious, wasteful, and reckless living. Anders said, impurity is also a broad term referring to moral uncleanness in our thought, life, speech, and actions. Ephesians 5, 3 through 4 says, but sexual morality uh, and all impurity and co or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Well, 13 more to go. Next is sensuality. And one word study calls it a violent spite which rejects restraint and indulges in lawless insolent. insolence. So it seems fitting that Paul would cap off the progression of sexual sins with this one. Riken described it as indecency, a lack of respect for what is right and good. It involves not only engaging in wanton behavior, but flaunting it in public. There's a lot of flaunting these days, aren't in there? It's, I think Jeremiah 8:12 captures this idea really well when it asks this question. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They didn't know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among the fallen when I punish them, says the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the word Yahweh, which is a holy word in God's word. 
It's the name for God that God gave. It doesn't even have a vowel in it. It's like a breath. You, it's like a word you can't even speak. And that's going to be who judges these sins, so we need to make sure we don't practice them. Praise God, Psalm 34, 5 says, those who look at him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Amen. Well, next category is religious sins, and it starts with idolatry. This word's probably best defined by Romans 1.25 because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than, cre than the creator. That's really the definition of idolatry, serving something made uh, over the person who made it. Church, I, I really believe that uh, a lot of our American materialism, our world's materialism, there's a growing global middle class, and I believe much of it borders or is idolatry. Even a relationship can be an idol under that definition. I love my wife, but there are times where relationships can be idolatrous. We need to be careful. It says the created thing. The, the thing God gave us for our pleasure, we can make an idol if we're not careful. Next is sorcery. This is the Greek word pharmakeia, interestingly enough. It's where we get our word pharmacy. MacArthur said it originally referred to medicines in general, but eventually only to mood and mind-altering drugs, as well as the occult, witchcraft, and magic. Many pagan religious practices required the use of these drugs to aid in the communication with deities. Listen, friends, certain drugs may be legal, but that don't make them right. And I'm not here to tell you to make a list of the, our pharmaceutical insanity in our country, but it is. All right, and you should be cautious to compromising your mind or your soul with a, something that takes you out of it, right? We're to be surrendered in mind and soul and spirit to Christ, not a drug. We're called to also fear God, right? Not the devil or the demonic, right? We fear God. I'm not scared of the devil, but I don't want to mess around with him and pick a fight. I want to fear God. So don't be messing around with things that alter your state of reality, including Ouija boards, witchcraft. You make yourself vulnerable to the devil. Well, the next category is social sins. And uh, it's interesting that this is his longest portion of the list. There's eight of these. Uh, we could call this sins against your neighbor because remember, he had already said, you know, all the laws found in this one word, love your neighbor as yourself. And the first of these is enmity. And this word, uh, along with others, is in the plural, which denotes multiple manifestations of this particular sin. So this could be broken down in a bunch of different sins. It could be hatred toward nations, hatred toward different classes of people who aren't like us, um, and, uh, and in, of course, <laughs> individuals as well. And uh, it's interesting that of Paul's six uses of this word, four of them are in reference to the local church life. <laughs> And where there's hatred, there's also the next one, strife. This is the word eris, E-R-I-S. And it means to quarrel or a readiness to quarrel, having a contentious spirit, affection for dispute. Friend, our world has an unusual affection for dispute. And I pray we don't mimic that in our homes, our relationships. We just soon sue you as look at you. Right, we enjoy it. It's like a, we're in love with dispute. Y'all know what an auroboros is? I don't know if I pronounced that right, but it's one of those ancient symbols. It's a snake that's eating its own tail. They used to wear them like bracelets. 
It's probably because they had actually seen this happen. I've seen it. If you watch Animal Planet or kids, you know, animal shows, there, there are snakes that eat their tails. The snakes are cold-blooded, so they can't regulate their temperature. So if their temperature gets off whack, they get disoriented, and their metabolism spikes, and it gives them a false sense of hunger. They're, their stomach's full. They want to eat anything that's put in their way, including their own tail. And so they eat their own tail. And I think that's kind of what Paul had in mind in Galatians 5.15 when he says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. That's, that's strife. Next is jealousy. This is the word zealous. It, it's actually an onomatopoeia. An onomatopoeia is like a word that mimics a sound like pow, boom, right? And this one in the original language mimics water boiling over. <laughs> from the heat, right? It's derived from a zeo, which means to boil. It literally means inner feeling boiling over. It can be used negatively like jealousy or positively like zeal, depending on the context. Obviously here it's in the negative. And this is different than envy, which we'll talk about in just a second. Next is fits of anger, all right? This means to rush along, getting heated up, breathing violently. <sighs> Scholars say this flaw is completely absent of the Lord's expressing intense anger. God got angry. Jesus got angry in the Bible. Accordingly, this word is used of God's perfect holy wrath. There's different types of anger. Re Revelation 14.10 says, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire. Only the Lord exercises perfect righteous wrath. So we depend fully on him to help us express anger correctly. Be angry and sin not. That's the command of Scripture. We need to do that. Not in a fit of anger. Everybody thinks uh, Jesus got suddenly lost his temper and turned over the, t the tables in the temple. No, he sat down and made a whip in one of those. He, he was methodical and, and intentional. There's things that should make us angry, but be careful how you control them. Then rivalries. That means uh, work done solely for hire. In ancient uh, Greek, it was like used of mercenaries who do things for selfish ambition, acting for one's own self gain, regardless of the discord it causes. It places self-interest ahead of what the Lord declares right or what's good for others. Y'all having fun yet? I tell you what, what we're going to start doing from this point on, when I name a sin that you're guilty of, you just stand up and tell us the story. We would never get it. We'd never go home today. And I got a flight to catch at 2.30. All right. Uh, next is dissensions. Five more to go, by the way. Uh, this is from uh, a combo of two words, separately and standing. It means to stand separately, standing apart. And unfortunately, it, it's used of divisions which wrongfully separate people into pointless, groundless factions. Masks, no masks. Let me just ask everyone in here that hates cold weather to please stand. This is a joke. Don't stand up. You're like, I'm ready. You know? Okay? Some of you like beach. Some of you like mountains. I don't know what you like. All right? I just like whatever season it is. It's fine by me. It doesn't matter. There are so many pointless opinions that are not based out of Scripture. And you need to be careful, Christian, which hills you pick to die on. Well, next is divisions. This one has more to do with <coughs> personal choice. It highlights the subjective or the individual nature of a specific and divisive opinion. In the New Testament, this word was used of individual parties or sects, different divisions in religiously that operated within Judaism 
One, one way probably the gut that Satan's used over the years to divide all our churches. And finally, the last social sin that I'm going to mention is envy that Paul mentioned. And this one's unlike jealousy, remember? Because jealousy can be good or bad, but envy's always bad. Envy is glad to see others experience misfortune or pain. Trent said, it's the feeling of ill will or jealous envy that negatively energizes us with an embittered mind conveying displeasure at another's good without longing to raise oneself to the level of him whom he envies, but only to depress the envied to his own level. And friend, envy comes on us largely when we're not content with the things God has already given us. And so we long instead for what we think he's given others. And then finally, alcohol-related sins. And most of y'all know that I do not believe that alcohol is a sin in itself. I don't believe drinking's a sin. We can argue that after next week, two weeks from now, because I leave right after the service. But that does not mean that God doesn't put safe and respectful parameters around drinking. And I want to be clear on this, lest you think I just am flippant about alcohol. And by the way, all our freedoms in Christ have parameters attached to them. They, I do have freedom, <laughs> but there are parameters. So here Paul lists two sins associated with alcohol. One is drunkenness. And this is really the entire stage that indulging in drink encompasses, right? This is why Paul strikes at the contrast between flesh and fruit when he says in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Friend, listen. At least half of all violent crimes involve alcohol consumption by the perpetrator, the victim, or both. They've also found that half of sexual assaults on college campuses involve a situation in which the perpetrator, the victim, or both were consuming alcohol. And alcohol may not be the cause, but it's clearly a risk factor for a world of sin, including sexual assault. And that doesn't mean the, the victim of that assault is at fault, but they did put, make themselves more vulnerable when they got drunk. And I already mentioned how pagan rituals took place back then, ceremonies, but some of them required participants to get drunk first, right? And friend, if you think we don't have that old, ancient, crazy, archaic cult going on in America, you're crazy and you've never been to a football game or a NASCAR race, <laughs> all right? We've got our ceremonies, our fishing trips, our cookouts, our lake days, any excuse to go a little further than we need to. There is no location or ceremony that excuses drunkenness, period. Don't be on the wrong side of that, regretting your actions. Then the next, it ends with orgies. In, our, in different Bible versions, and it, it translates this as revelings, carousing, wild parties. And in the three times that it's mentioned in the New Testament, it's, in, it's linked to drunkenness, ironically, right? Timothy George says, in the New Testament times, as in our own day, the abuse of alcohol contributed to marital infidelity, child and spouse abuse, abuse the erosion of family life, and moral chaos in society. And lest we think the list is exhaustive, Paul goes on to say in verse 21, and things like these. Church, listen, around the world we have specific laws and many of those are not ambiguous. A speed limit sign has a number on it, 
All right. It doesn't have a little smiley face that says uh, better slow it down there, buddy. You know, you know, keep it between the lines. Wink, wink. No, it's a number. It's a number. And Paul had to remind us of what sin looks like. Right. This list is like driving past to me. It's like driving past a dead skunk on the road. You know, it, it gets in your vents. You know, you're clicking over to recirculate, you know, real quick. Too late. It's already in there. Right. You can taste it. Right. Y'all are with me on that. Oh, gosh. Y'all going to think I'm crazy. I, I actually like the smell of dead skunks because it reminds me of road trips with my family. I call me. <laughs> Mary, Mary Turner told me this morning I was kind of an out-of-the-box pastor anyway. So, I mean, there you go. I knew I was, I knew I was different. All right. We have identification classification. And now Paul gives the ramification, right? Galatians 5.21, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Unless we misunderstand, Paul clarifies the sentence with the phrase, those who do such things, uh, he, he, that phrase with the word do, and that word do is in the active process in performing and accomplishing a deed, implying that what that which is done as a regular practice, a routine or a habit. The ESV says the present participle do refers to those who make a practice of doing such things as a pattern of life. Their outlook, their outward conduct indicates their inward spiritual status that they are not born of God, do not have the Holy Spirit and are not God's true children. 1 John 3, 9 says, no one born of God makes a practice for, of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Doesn't mean we, won't, we don't continue to sin. There were maybe moments, there will be moments where we fail miserably and we may fail for, at a sin now that we were committing, we committed 10 years ago. Isn't that repetition of sin? No. I believe that you have a heart of, in, in Christ through the Holy Spirit that doesn't want that and is seeking actively to get rid of that practice in your life. Doesn't mean you won't ever fail again. But you have a barricade, you have a, you have a war plan against that sin. That's what we've been talking about on Wednesday nights. Lewis and Clark, by the way, left a, their signature. Well, Clark left a signature. We've got a picture of it up here. On the side of Pompey's Pillar, in Montana, you can go see this, I guess. It's the on, only on-site physical evidence of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Friend, let me just ask you this. Which side of the mountain are you gonna carve your name on? <laughs> now, listen, if you've called on the name of the Lord for salvation and repentance, your name's already carved on something that is gonna outlast Pompey's pillar. <laughs> it was put there by Jesus' own handwriting in the Lamb's Book of Life. Which means we should be about identifying sin and confessing it in victory and moving forward in our faith. We're going to talk about fruit next week. Before we get to fruit, we've got to identify the failure and cry out to God for forgiveness. The Holy Spirit's conviction, by the way, is a constant reminder to me that I am a child of God, and I pray it is for you too. Would you stand? Father God, we love you and we worship you this morning. And we 
poured over these just just 15 of the hundreds of sins that there are to commit. We just looked at 15 and felt really uncomfortable. <laughs> and so God, I, I pray that, that that discomfort is actually something that you use to drive us to comfort. The fact that we are uncomfortable by sin should remind us that we have the Holy Spirit living in us or drawing us to himself to trust in him. So I pray right now, if there are people here today that felt a little sting when we read that list, that you'd remind them that they are sinners, but they can be forgiven of all sin and allowed to pass into the kingdom of God one day, that they will call out to you in repentance and faith and receive it. Lord, we know that we're gonna sin again. We know it, but it doesn't mean we wanna do it. It doesn't mean we're gonna seek it. We're gonna fight against it till the day we die and say hallelujah when we enter the kingdom of heaven. But until then, Lord, help us. I pray for those that are believers here today that just need a little boost off the complacent couch of their faith. I pray that you would speak to them and draw them. If there are people here that need to make a public profession of faith or people here that need to join this church and become part of this family, we ask that we do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been Sermon Audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com.